Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gongay-Rujic and your host, Ben Steiner. Well, welcome back to episode 143 of the Northern Football Podcast. Um, I don't really know where to start this one because Canada played a pretty depressing effort this morning. Uh, I was up at 3 a.m. to watch it. Alex, I know you watched it live as well. Peter, slacking off, not watching it at 3 a.m. I had no obligations for the first time since I think I before I started journalism. It was weird, but kind of nice as well to sleep in properly, see the score and go, okay, I know what I'm going to be expecting. Go in and watch the game, you know? It was honestly pretty easy to watch at 3 in the morning. I think probably maybe if it was a nothing burger game. It was fun to watch Japan. They were really good to, to watch. And to they yeah. very aesthetic and eye-pleasing. Yep. So I think that helped me stay awake. It's like watching a choreographed dance routine. Like That's what I texted into the group chat. Because just the way that they know. It's like, okay, the ball's here. We're going to go here. The ball's there. we got to do this. And it was just it was a, a joy to watch them do that like I saw two of their games of the World Cup exact same thing and like against elite opponents like Croatia for me that was probably the best tactical matchup of the World Cup and getting to see them do that again it, it's always a joy to watch Japan yeah they, they're just so orchestrated and organized in everything they do like even when Canada would get the ball and try and play out of the back Japan would just flick on and off their press and it would just completely neutralize Canada they would crowd Canada's key players into uneffectiveness um, and then, you know, their fourth wall was something of brilliance as well. So uh, they were showing out all night in front of 42,000. Um, Lovely atmosphere, too. Great atmosphere. Phenomenal atmosphere. Yeah, it was good Good to see the, the atmosphere after the first, you know, 20 minutes or so of difficulties on, <laughs> on one soccer. But I, I know that's probably on the world feed as well. Um, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the Northern Football Podcast and make sure to follow us on social as well. And of course, we haven't mentioned the score yet, Japan 4, Canada 1, Canada looking outclassed pretty well in their first match under interim head coach Mauro Biello. The goal coming late in the 89th minute from Junior Hoylett, three goals conceded in about 10 minutes on either side of halftime. And we'll get into the questions from Paul Newmark. Given the quality of Japan, should we honestly be shocked at this result? Of course, it's the same same result that Germany achieved against Japan just a short while ago. You guys both predicted 3-1 as well, and I was going for a 2-1 and to be honest I feel like and I understand that we always talk about hindsight when it whenever results like these happen if that penalty goes in or one of those two opportunities where they built up well down the left and then found Kyle Aaron or found Jonathan David but they got trigger shy uh, had gone in maybe that would have been the end result but obviously that's not what happened and we saw they were 4-0 down after 48-49 minutes and that was the reality right Japan is a very quality side. We know that. Um, it's a new staff. It's a shorthanded staff in this camp. They only had three training sessions. They had to fly halfway across the world. No Stefan Ishtakio. I understand Japan were also missing some key players like Takekubo. Then again, you can also make the argument that Stefan Ishtakio missing for Canada is a much bigger loss for them than Takekubo is for Japan. Highlighted by the fact that they scored four goals without them. So, no Matoma either. Or Matoma, exactly. Yeah, gee, I forgot about Kyra Matoma as well. Uh, or Ritsu Doan. Um, yeah, the list goes on and on there. So, 
all those factors definitely came into play. The fact they hadn't played in four months together as an A squad also came into play. But I also feel like we didn't learn anything that we hadn't already learned from the World Cup or from the Nations League final in that in these games against marquee sides, they get trigger shy in front of goal and individual mistakes cost them. That's really all that came down to because there were spells where they actually were playing quite well and adjusted quite well, predominantly from kind of minute seven, minute eight until minute 25. Then they exchanged chances just before Japan got their second maybe could have gotten themselves back into the game. And then as we know, it unfolded the way it did. So that's generally speaking, like I'm not shocked that's how it played out, but there were also times when you could see, all right, there was some positive stuff here. Yeah. And I mean, look, that's what it's important. I think say that it's not so much the result. That's the problem. This is a good Japanese team. And it's important to stress that it's not, you know, I I guess a cop out. It's not, you know, you're not taking away from Canada by highlighting this is a good Japanese team. This is an expected result. I think more of the issue is how you got the result. The fact that you kind of ran things back. You didn't learn anything. This is friendly. You always want to learn something in friendlies. I'm not sitting here thinking anything different to what I thought after the Nations League final or like after the World Cup, like Peter mentioned. So that's you know that, that, that's something that's frustrating and especially because. It wasn't so much as well Japan being phenomenal as they were. They were excellent, but a lot of Canada's downfall came from Canada. It was like Canada beating itself in a lot of moments. Like the first goal, for example. Okay, sometimes you can give up a first-minute goal, but it wasn't as if Japan just took the ball and went, like, you know, right after Canada. Perfect execution, cross, like nothing you can do about it. No, it was Japan went in, Canada recovered the ball. They had a chance to clear Alfonso Davies' dribbles into trouble. And then it was just panic stations after that. Cross, Samuel Piet can't clear. Cross again, Cornelius can't clear. And then it's in the back of your net after deflection. Like, it's that, that there was three chances to clearly recover the situation, get on the ball. And there's just too many examples of that. Alistair Johnson gets caught in possession. Just, you know, he tries to turn back and maybe could have played it back to the keeper or something. Gets caught, it's in the back of your net. Um, even on the second goal where it was a nice bit of play from, from Japan, but it was just too loose in the midfield after a transition, not enough, the recovery time was just too slow after a turnover that happened way earlier. Like the turnover happened 10 seconds before the goal, yet the transition was, uh, the the fact Japan still hit them in transition despite that, uh, it was just, it was all too sloppy. And I think that's the frustrating part that, it, it, this isn't a surprise. I think we kind of saw some of the shortcomings of what was there and available to this Canadian team. At least if this was someone like, okay, maybe Luke Defugeral is getting burned on one of the goals. Okay, at least you're learning something about him. You're seeing him in action. I'm sitting like someone like maybe in the second half, Steve Vittoria came on and was struggling with the speed. That's something we know. Like, Steve Vittoria isn't fast. He's not going to become fast overnight. Like, I'm not... Like, little things like that. It's not... We're not learning anything. Milan Boren was struggling with the ball at his feet. Again, that's not that's not a knock on Milan. That's just you know, it's Borian. He he struggles to play with his feet, so it's just an expectation. I think that's frustrating that it was the mistakes were just mistakes that were there, and it's kind of like, well, then you didn't learn anything. And these are friendly; these are a chance to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you go out in a must-win game and you stick with what works, what you think works for you, and then you fail, all right, fair enough. But to do so in a friendly, when you have a chance to experiment, especially you're at half, you're down three goals, there was no excuse not to, to, to experiment. And then instead, there was just one like-for-like like sub that really felt kind of unnecessary, and that kind of set the tone, it feels like, for the uh, the game. Yeah, I mean, the, the game started off with the, that comedy of errors at the back, and I think Canada, from the start of it as well, you look back to the Nations League final, and that effort, that dog, for lack of a better word, wasn't necessarily there. 
um, because it just didn't look like Canada was interested to start the match. I get that it was a long flight. I get that they you know, only had two days of training leading up to the game, but they didn't look interested. They didn't look organized. They didn't look ready to play Japan. Uh, and Japan were, were quick off the hop as well. Like, sure, it was Canadian errors that forced that, that early goal, but Japan started the game at 100%, and they were getting the ball into the Canadian area in that first minute quickly. They weren't sort of, you know, settling into the game, feeling the game out, and, and then organizing an attack. So Canada needed that little bit to get organized, and they probably needed, you know, a chance to go over the bar, hit the post, or something like that to wake them up a little. Um, unfortunately, that wake-up call uh, in somewhat came on, you know, the second goal, um, maybe even the third goal, or missing the penalty. Like, there, there was just so much in that one where Canada just did not look ready for it. And then I think from a managerial standpoint, and we'll get into Mauro Biello as well, he tried to win the game. He tried to adjust at halftime with that Vittoria sub into a move that, you know, didn't necessarily do anything positive for the meaning of that match. You're not trying to, you know, go and limit goal differential uh, in a friendly match. You like, you know, throw in Luke DeFoudreau, throw in players that you may maybe haven't seen in certain systems because you have that opportunity to try it. By that point, the game was already lost. If if not, it was lost before the kickoff because the mentality wasn't there with the group. Um, and so it was managerial errors, I thought, for not getting the most out of the game, especially when you only have one game in this window. You want to make the most of it, and they didn't do that. It seems like another wasted opportunity. Like, sure, they, they played, but, you know, what's the takeaways? What did we learn? We were talking about it off-air there's not much new that we learned from this Canadian game. That's, I think, the part that sucks the most for me is that, okay, this was the game that if you were to have had a second friendly, at least you could take that and say, all right, look, we were apart for four months. All these changes have happened. Chalk it down, it happens. Let's move on, bring it into the second game, improve on, on what we did or didn't do. And go out there. The fact that this is now going to be the last game before two very crucial home and away matches to determine Gold America qualification and Nations League finals qualification is, is, is something that really sucks. This is one of the lasting effects that that does have. Well, it's worrying too because you also at the same time you know there's no second game. So it's also like you don't use it as an experimentation true, like it's yeah. like it's of course you'd like the second game don't get me wrong i mean we would have loved four <laughs> we would have loved both september window games as well but you also kind of know what you have this is your chance to experiment whether you like it or not i just it's worrying because you kind of run back more of the same and then it's a worry because well now you're heading into two must win copa america qualifiers right you're not gonna, so you're not going to change then and it's kind of mm -hmm. like okay maybe the nice thing is about Copa America qualifiers, for better or for worse, unless they're playing a, J a Jamaica, Canada should have the uh, individual quality to overcome whoever they play. Just like Panama in June. Yep. But at the same time, again, it's also the format. Like Panama in June is different because you're in Vegas, it's a neutral site. Yeah. Good Your point. first like is away. Like, say yep. you go to a Panama and you get destroyed 2 3 nothing, and all of a sudden. Teams will have confidence of, yeah. okay, it's Canada struggling right now. Let's give them our all, especially, you know, a team like Panama with Thomas oh, yeah. Christensen's going to do that. Heck, the way Trinidad and Tobago is playing, they're certainly going to. Yeah. Uh, a couple, a couple, yeah, a couple Canadian, uh, you know, dual nationals in their side. You know, they'd be up for a game against Canada. 
Like, it's it's worrying because, yeah, now there's going to be no experimentation and it just feels so predictable for Canada. And there, it just felt like, yeah, there was really a, a missed opportunity not to, to, to see more. And I really, again, I, we'll, we'll talk about Biello and I can, I'll expand on it, but just it really comes down to those second half changes. I think for really, for me, the first half is fine. Okay, you're coming in, you don't want to rock the boat too much. Mm-hmm. Start your preferred 11, your veteran 11, fine. It was clearly not working. It was, it's something where at a certain point, at halftime, if he made four subs just to make subs, I would have been fine with that too. Like at least light a fire, right? But the fact that it was like, all right, the assessment was from that first half was, you know what, all we need is to bring in Steven Vittoria for Derek Cornelius. Like even like for Cornelius, it's like I feel bad because he's been in such good form for club for, for a couple years now. He finally gets his chance to anchor the back three as he should, as he's been doing for Malmo at a very good level. And that's the how short the leash is for him. Um, whereas you compare, just again, someone guys like Kamal Miller and Alistair Johnson who have been key rocks, but they've also struggled a bit lately. Why is Cornelius the one get, getting that's, that's getting the short leash in that standpoint where he needs these reps as well to build chemistry with those guys or build chemistry with... It's just that, that Cornelius sub really overall... Just kind of, just it, it kind of summed up how the game went for me. I think in so many ways you could dissect that Cornelius sub. Just was. And for mine, Zilberstein, what are your genuine thoughts on Biello's setup of the team today? Obviously, he didn't have a lot of time to prepare with these players, but there certainly has to be some criticism directed towards him. And I think his game management was off today. He just he wasn't taking this game for what it was. He was trying to limit the damage because, you know, I don't want to say that it was maybe selfish in some ways, but. If you keep Derek Cornelius in there and you keep the setup from that first half, does Canada lose this game 7-1? In which case, is that much more of a blemish on his case for the head coaching role that he's gone out there and say that says that he wants to get? Um, and that's the kind of thing that you'll run into when you don't have enough games to experiment, but also have a coach that in some ways needs to coach to win because he will be examined on the results and the, the process that he goes through. Um but the results speak for themselves as well. Like if he can, you know, squeak out a, a win against top opponents or at least keep the damage to a minimum, then he seems like a suitable replacement. Well, look, to Biello's point, I think, well, Herdman wasn't sacked, so this is a different discussion. If Herdman was sacked, it's different. But still, despite that, as the time of Herdman's departure, there were still several questions being asked of Herdman and some of the decisions he'd made. It wasn't like his seat was cold, say. Like, you know, like we said, the seat was starting to warm up. The fact that Biello went, and especially because Biello, again, made comments in the pre-match just mentioning, okay, we want, I want to bring a bit of something different. Yes, I don't want to, you know, completely change things, but I do want to bring something different. For him to completely go out and do pretty much the same thing, I think was... Because, again, I think if he goes out and acknowledges in the start, look, I don't want to, like, I'm just going to go for continuity. I'm just going to stick with what's been working and try to go from there. Fair, like, fair. But the fact that he said, oh, I want to bring some changes. And as a head coach, it's kind of something where if Herdman was still around, I think there would have been some changes asked of him. For him to kind of run it back was, it was frustrating because it was a chance to to, to learn and to experiment. And, yeah, it's also tough because I think, look, Biello got it wrong from the start. That's okay. Sometimes it happens. That's like I mentioned. Like, you're not always going to get it right from the start. You go with what works. But the key is to adjust. And I think that was also the big thing that Canada didn't really adjust. Not only did they only make that one change at halftime, which I felt was completely unfair to Derek Cornelius, 
Like what? The next change wasn't for a while. It wasn't till like the sixty plus minute. Sixty first, yeah, when that triple sub was made. Yeah, the, the midfield jig up, and yeah. it was kind of like, where was that in the fiftieth minute, or you know, where was some, where was that at halftime, or something like that. It was just, it was one of those where sometimes as a coach, it's like if you get it wrong from the start, you just you have to go for it, and and, and for better or for worse, even if it does it, it means making some uncomfortable choices, and it just kind of felt like. After that first half, it was, it was just like, oh, well, the, the message the sub sent was, oh, this was pretty much fine. We just need our vet back there in Steven Vittoria. And it was just kind of like, I don't know. It felt like there was so many more systematic issues that just weren't addressed as the game went on. And from Dan Clark, is Biello in over his head or was it circumstantial that the team performed so poorly? I think a bit of both, to be honest. He doesn't seem in a lot of ways like a head coach. I'm sure he had success at CF Montreal, um, but he also faces difficulties there, and then he hasn't been a head coach since then. He was suitable as an assistant coach, but he also was bringing together staff that you know hadn't worked together with players of this level before. You know, Carmen Asako is going from the the York Lions to the men's national team real quick, um, and the changes in the staff probably didn't help necessarily. Um, but Biello also seems to be fair. Paul Stalteri is also a men's national team alumni, so that definitely gives them clout. Same with Biello. Yeah, like they they have clout, but I mean, at that point in the men's national team, you're, we're at a, we're at a time now where you're trying to raise the men's national team to higher than it's ever been before, and it's at a point where, or at least you know, a year ago was at a point where it is higher than it's ever been before in a lot of ways, topping Concacaf World Cup qualifying and, and stuff of that nature. But then you're bringing in people of the old guard who don't necessarily have that level or have that, you know, drive to get the team to where it was. And it seems like by having Biello and having Stalteri within the group, and don't get me wrong, I think they're fully capable of coaching at that level, but I just don't know whether, you know, trying to bring in the new Canada that we talked about for so long, that's not necessarily the characteristic you want behind the team. Well, what I'd say as well to Biello, what was worrying about this it's look there's some obviously like again going back to Herman issues had cropped up you know some of them as well that you met like that you've seen it's little things that we saw in this game it's the little things like body language isn't the same that it used to be guys are turning over the ball and it's not the same reaction maybe as it, as it is it's tactical it's like it's little things that are all adding up right it's something as little as Canada's reaction after the own goal goes in right which could have easily been a galvanizing moment or even the first goal, like I mentioned, the the, the, the turnovers and et cetera, like there's little things that have crept in. And sometimes that happens under a head coach. That's something where for Herdman, you could argue, well, look, like there's reasons why most coaches don't stick beyond three, four years at a club. Like that sort of stuff can just naturally seep in. You get used to a guy, whatever things happen. I think for Biello, that when you're coming in as a new coach, you sometimes you have to bring a, a bit of a fresh voice, a different perspective, just to rock the boat a bit, just to you know maybe remind people like, okay, so the coach is fired, like things are changing, right? For sometimes you don't like those changes, but change is happening, and I think the big worry for Biello that it felt very like you could have you could have taken him out, like you could have told most people that Biello wasn't even there and that Herdman was still the coach, and people would have believed you. And I think that's something where it's like when you're bringing in a new head coach again, like. Even if it's stuff you don't agree with, you kind of want to rock the boat. You want you kind of want to, um, you know, just change things so players aren't complacent, so that you're not letting compl- that sort of thing seep in. So that's what I'd say was worrying about Biello, that it was very much like, I'm looking across the subs, I'm looking across the game plan from the start, the adjustment. 
again, it's like it feels like it could have been a lot of what John Herdman did, and um, obviously that's something where yeah, this is game one under an interim interim coach. There's a reason why the new coach bounce exists. What happens when you bring in a new coach? Players have fire. Players come in and they, they it changes. And sometimes nothing changes tactically. Sometimes a new coach just comes in and they're like vibes. Just play. <laughs> they're just like just play, and it's like then play. That's all players need. So the fact that this is how things go with an interim head coach is a bit of a worry just because it's like, you know, this sort of stuff is usually supposed to provide a response. Even if the interim, like sometimes you see the interim can be, you know, it can be the backup water boy, but just you come in, you bring some vibes, the players get fired up, but that clearly didn't feel like the, that was the case. And I think that would be something to be a worry from, from Bielo's perspective that he didn't offer that sort of different fire, that different look. That makes sense. Well, that's what you're also going to get by hiring a interim coach who was on staff as well. Like you're not bringing in necessarily that new fire, that new coach bump that you would with somebody that's completely new to the group. And sure, we we've, we've heard that they had you know various initiation things and team bonding activities within their their brief lead up to this game. But you know the group outside of I guess Defugeroles knows Biello well, and even uh, even Defugeroles has had multiple conversations with Biello in terms of the, the youth national theme picture. So there wasn't necessarily like a culture reset there. Yeah, but at the same time, there's just because you're on the same staff doesn't mean you have the fully same. Like that's what I'd say. Even like some little thing. Like you see that all the time where guys might be on the same staff and they end up coming in and just bringing something different. Like it does, I, I think the staff part isn't as necessarily as important. And I think it, it's also a concern from Biela's perspective because one of the knocks was that, oh, this is just, you know, Herdman late or some, some of those things were said, which, you know, I'd say is probably unfair based on Biela's body of work. But in this game, he didn't kind of disprove that notion that it could end up being a bit of a Herdman light, which is, again not to knock on someone like Herman because he's done a lot of good. And that's, again, not going not going in that direction, but I'm just going to the point that Herman had had some struggles this year that, um, you know, there was questions being asked. The fact that Biello immediately is coming in and kind of, you know, bringing back those same questions, it is, you know, it doesn't dispel that notion that might be out there. One of the things that I thought was a real positive was Kenneth's new kits looked actually a little bit more vibrant than the old ones. Uh, the you know templated Alex isn't having that. The templated Nike kits looked better than the other templated Nike kits. Um, back to the questions from Mike Friesen. Will Canada matching Germany's performance against Japan finally silence the critics and help everyone move on from the Herdman era? I don't think so, and I think you're probably being a little bit facetious in that question. It's not so much the scoreline, it's more the performance, I'd say. Again, no shame in going out and losing 6-0 to Japan, but as long as the process is right, you're learning something, you're getting some young players experimented, that's what friendlies are all about. So not so much the score, no, it's more the performance that really worried me. Because again, I feel like there's a scenario, you tell me Japan wins 5 nothing, and I'm sitting here happy because I learned something, you see some the beginning of something new, but... It was just, yeah, there was none of that. And that's probably why this is so frustrating because, yeah, like many people have mentioned, no shame to in isolation to be losing 4-1 to Japan. I mean, you know, Germany's certainly seen it. Turkey, some good teams have, have fallen to this Japan side, but uh, it's all about the process. And from Herbert McKilla, Steven Estacchio is clearly our most important player. This midfield looks completely lost without him. Likewise, was not calling up Ali Abed for the midfield reassurance a bad call. I still don't think not calling up Ali Ahmed was necessarily the wrong thing. Uh, we've seen teams in the past want to hold on to certain players um, in friendly windows, and you know I think that's probably a lot of the reason that 
Matthew Chouinier wasn't called up earlier as well. Of course, he gets his, his debut. Um, but Stefan Estacchio, I mean, losing him in that midfield is vital because the midfield was overwhelmed at basically every point today. Samuel Piet has served the team well, but against these, you know, top teams, he's not necessarily, he doesn't have the pace, he doesn't have the uh, skill set um, to really offer anything more than at best replacement level for Canada. Well, I mean, Ustakio is just, it's its clear that he is. I mean, it's been clear since 2021 that he's Canada's most important player. So that's no secret. But yeah, I mean, again, in terms of, it's something that we at least I've been saying for a while. This also just shows Canada's midfield depth is a concern. It's why it's important to look at all and every option out there. It's why it, was, it would have been important to see Mathieu Chouinier earlier. It's why it was so good to see Ali Ahmed shine at the Gold Cup because that was an option stepping up. You're like, okay, that's something there. Um, it's why Victor Latoury not seeing the field at the Gold Cup was disappointing because this is someone where, look, if you look, there's the, the, the number six depth chart for Canada right now in terms of natural number six. It is not very deep. At least it would have been nice to know what Latoury has because, again, as we know, we're an injury or two away from seeing someone like Latoury. It would at least be nice to know what he could offer. So, yeah, I think it is a bit of a worry how the midfield group has been handled just because it's been like the depth isn't there to a point where you could get a... Like, there's been so many opportunities for a Schwanier to come in. Uh, for uh, There's a chance for Ahmed to come in this camp, and we're not seeing that. And I think that that, that could add a lot, especially you see how Schwanier came in. Like, he brought a bit of a fire off the bench, a bit of a spark. And you can only wonder what Ahmed coming in. And again, we talk about sloppiness and some complacency off the ball. I think having that fresh blood like an Ahmed, a Schwanier... Even when Harry Payton came in, he was fighting the ball a little bit, but he was bringing energy, bringing a bit of something different, and it just feels like it was lacking. Like to uh, to, to Piet's credit, I again I thought he did okay off the ball, and I thought he was getting to some good areas. Really, what was killing Canada was their number eights. Just as Orio and Kone were drifting too far forward, and they were making too many errors in possession. And that was just leaving Piet on an island against one of the best midfields in the world. And that's not going to be a task that anyone, uh, like, I, I think guys like, you know, you look at guys playing for Real Madrid and Barcelona are going to struggle for with that sort of threat um, if they're on their own against this Japan midfield. So, yeah, the midfield is a, an absolute worry. And part of that's building up depth. Again, Nathan Saliba, that's, it's someone, maybe he struggles in this game, but someone at least, he's 19, you can push, you can learn from him long term. And... Uh, yeah, it just feels like maybe some of the in, in midfield, yeah, Ustakio and Kone, those are guys who write in with Penn, but after that, it feels like it should be open. Like, Especially look at the last few ones, it's tough with a guy like Azorio because he's been so key to this program and he brings you a lot. But for example, okay, he, like, I'm not going to say drop Azorio from this, the squad completely, no. But within form, Matthew Schoenier is having the season of his life. He's an MLS all-star. He's been playing great. By most metrics, he's outplaying Jonathan Azorio. Would that not indicate that he could at least be pushing him to start? Um, yet Azorio ends up running the start. There, it feels like also in midfield that that competition needs to be stoked a bit more because there are options there. It's just we haven't seen them all, and that also adds to the illusion, the idea that the depth isn't at the, the level it could be. And from Villain Brooks, does the PK taker debate take a new turn after David went ice cold at the spot? I guess bringing a little bit of a new idea to the term Iceman. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the bait is over. At least, uh, you know, at least David's the one. If David's going to miss, I think they were saying, what, he's 19 for 23 over the last two, Something three like years. That, like, yeah. you know what? It was nice. Forget about it. Move on. It's just, I think it's just hilarious that uh, 
The, the PK that, debate doesn't want to die, clearly. Like. Jonathan David, great at PKs, missed. Stephen Vittoria, great at PKs, scores at the Gold Cup, but then misses a huge one in the shootout. Yep. Alfonso Davies, misses. Like, like, it's funny that, like, hey, maybe maybe Lucas Cavalini is the best option here. Call him up, bring him off the bench just to take penalties. That'd be quite the strategy, wouldn't it? Designated penalty taker, like a designated hitter in the National League. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if only you could have that. And from City of Losers 604, what difference would Cavalini have made? Would he have tried the Panenka? For Pro- some tremendous Pro- handle. That is a tremendous handle. Because that's exactly what we are. We're we lose. Losers. We lose. But we, we win in life because the mountains. Also true. And yeah. the ocean. Sports-wise, though, we have to pay for it. Well, I mean, it's going through a, a slight bright spot right now. Canucks won 8-1. How many trophies, though, apart from the Canadian Championships? Cascadia Cup. Years? Ooh, <laughs> excellent supremacy for a region that doesn't really exist. <laughs> the Vancouver Canadians of the Northwest League, single A baseball. You're, you're just setting them up for jokes now at this point. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna start celebrating like I don't know the Coquitlam Express winning a Junior A hockey tournament. It's the BCHL. There's only teams in BC. <laughs> One. Not, not, not even Again, junior but, hockey, you're setting up their jokes for them. Like, I, I mean, even junior hockey's been kind of pathetic. <laughs> there you go. Didn't UBC win a few national titles in not sports? So, not for a while. <laughs> yeah, city of losers. <laughs> we even tried to extend it under the freaking Fraser Valley. It still doesn't apply. Simon Fraser and like the G-Nack or something. <laughs> Who knows? I don't even remember. Anyways, about Cavallini, I mean, at this point, it was funny. Like, in terms of the penalties, maybe maybe that bravado of wanting the Panenka in the 91st minute of a game is what Canada just needs from penalties right now, because for whatever reason, it's just, they've got the yips beyond all yips, and it's it's just kind of funny. So, uh, I, I just thought that uh, that question was funny, and we had to put it in. And from Ryan Brins, I failed to understand why Biello didn't play a different goalkeeper in the second half. I would have said the same had Canada been up 3-0 at the half. I don't totally understand why he didn't have another goalkeeper to start the match. I would have loved to see Dane Sinclair really be the guy turned to in that game. I know I said on our previous podcast that Vorian probably made the most sense, but I still would have loved to see Dane Sinclair put out there. Um, and then maybe Maxime Kripo for a half as well. Yeah, I just feel like it's, again, if it's must-win games, fine. Go with your guy. But it's just like you have to wonder for Dane Sinclair and Maxime Kripo, especially because in the rare auditions they've gotten, they've both looked good. They've both brought us a bit of something different. They're kind of sitting there. It's like, what do I have to do to get that shot? Especially, especially okay, before the last few years, you could argue with Borean's club form. Borean's been struggling a bit for club form. Of course, Kripo's coming back from injury, but he's immediately slotted back in LAFC. Sinclair's been having... He's put together a couple consistently solid seasons for Minnesota. It's, you know, it's again, it's that sort of argument that I just mentioned with Azorio in midfield. It just feels like there's a bit of this... Because sometimes at the national team, that's the tough thing. Like, when do you draw the line between guys that are just so reliable for you and guys that are in form? And we're kind of... I think we're seeing that as well with the Kyle Laird, who's someone who, yeah, over the last year now, he's been struggling for the national mm-hmm. team and something has to give in that regard. And it just feels like there's too much of that. And the keeper debate is a great one just because ultimately... It, you know, for for better or for worse, and I think you definitely say it's been the latter. Borean hasn't really been challenged in goal as as you know, even though there's guys who should be right behind him at least based on their form. And uh, yeah, it's frustrating because 
I, I think there would have been every reason to start a Crepo. Because you know what Boyan's going to bring you. And if you want to go for him, if you didn't like what you've seen from a Crepo or a St. Clair today, great, go with Boyan in the must-win game. But the fact that you have a chance to experiment, try something new. Uh, I mean, look at Japan. I think their three goalkeepers combined had four caps heading into heading into this camp. They're experimenting uh, in goal. And it's like, that's what friendlies are for. And I think that was a, a bit, bit frustrating, yes, from the goalkeeping perspective. And from Villain Brooks, why was Vittoria subbed on at half? Has the back five been figured out? I well to the Vittoria point again. I think it was puzzling just from many aspects. I think it was puzzling from Vittoria's perspective, asking him to go. All right, like come in cold against a speedy J- Japan team that's just already eating, feasting in transition. Um, and it showed that you know, yeah, they didn't concede, but there are a few moments where it was getting hairy. Uh, at the back. So yes, I think that was puzzling, especially in terms of the message it sent to Cornelius and his great club form. And yeah, okay, you have a struggle half, but to quickly give up on him like that was a bit frustrating. But as for the back five, yeah, it's a bit worried because I think there's just too many many factors that make a back five work aren't working for Canada. Because I think one is always the wingbacks. The wingbacks are everything. And I think it was just too sloppy defensively from both of Canada's wingbacks in this game. Larea and Davies was just... Uh, you know, there were too many moments where Japan was finding space in behind them, which can't happen if you're um, going to play a back five. I think that also put a, a lot of pressure on the midfield, which was too, especially like I mentioned earlier, the eights weren't supporting Piet enough, so that kind of left Piet on an island. And then as a result to both of those things, the back three tried to overcompensate and they were stretching out way too much. Like there's just these gaps. Like look at the second goal, the gaps from where the right center back Johnson was to where Kamal Miller was. It's just this... It was so spread out, and um, I so I think yeah, it's a multitude of factors, and I think it's something where um, you you start to wonder if a formation change could make sense with a four three three or something like that, where you still get three in the midfield, maybe get that extra body to help you build out the back. Because I think that's another thing is that Canada's trying to when building out of the back, they're committing too many numbers forward, and then they're going long too much and losing second balls, and it just leads this. You know, it's just it's transition. Like teams are feasting in transition against Canada, and I think a four three three would help you get more bodies behind the ball to avoid that. Uh, so yeah, I think the the back five is showing clear warts right now, and unless those things are addressed, um, a new formation seems like uh, it could be the better option just to help Canada mitigate some of those issues. And from Shane Kelly, why try to play the ball out of the back with a pivot where only Kone was comfortable showing for the ball? Piet hit all game and out of possession. Why did? Wingback tuck in so much if midfielders weren't going to press wide. Piet was invisible for, for most of it, and when he was on the ball, he was making mistakes a lot of the time. Um, even Kone, I thought, was pretty well neutralized in terms of what he was able to do, because even though he brings the characteristics of being comfortable on the ball, Japan were able to turn on that press and immediately crowd him, immediately get the ball back from him, or immediately intercept a pass that even when he was uncomfortable on the ball, he couldn't do anything with it. Yeah, and I think the the playing out the back overall was a uh, struggle to, uh, you know, across the board. Because it starts really with Boyan. Because Boyan, again, not necessarily a knock on him, but he's not, you know, he's not going to be the Emmanuel Neuer, say. He's not, he's not going to be an Ederson with the ball at his feet. And there was a lot of times where he was going long unforced. I think there was one in the first half. That really stood out to me. I think someone passed it. I want to say Larea passed it back to Boyan, and Boyan had a chance to take a touch and play the left-sided center back, and he yes. he hit yeah, it yeah. he hit it first time long, <clears throat> yeah. and they ended up losing the ball in the transition moment. 
little things like that. Especially if they keep going long. And Kyle Laren, yeah, he can win aerial duels, but he's not necessarily the guy that's going to be constantly... Like, he's not like a Cavallini type where, okay, you'd almost understand if Cavallini's leading the line, he's kind of just got this knack of pushing guys off and winning aerial duels. Uh, like, uh, there's that factor. There's also the factor that the wingbacks kept pushing too too far forward when I think, given the skills of Lorraine David or Davies, I think they could have helped a lot by dropping in a bit deeper, playing one-two touch as well, because when they did drop deeper, Davies was playing three-four touch and ditto with Lorea. Um, and then the midfielders weren't showing. So for me, it was a multitude of those factors were really hurting Canada at the back. And from Dan Clark, should we be giving Liam Miller more opportunities? He was a bright spot. And I think he's been in great form since he was starting to get more minutes at Preston North End, step up in his, his regular play. Great goal um, cup, too. And, yeah, I mean, he's he's looked good in a Canadian shirt over the last little while as well. So, yeah, I mean, he's definitely a depth option for Canada. He's not someone you want starting every game. Um, but he is certainly improving his stock within the Canadian picture. He just brought a spark. That's sometimes what you need to see. He was going at guys, um, made something happen. That's the sort of energy you want off the bench. And, yeah, it's interesting because we talk about playing a 4-3-3. Potentially it's something that works. You sacrifice a striker and go to four at the back. Well, that will open up room for wingers. And, I mean, you'd imagine someone like Tejon Buchanan starts on one of the wings, but that left wing spot could be open if Miller keeps putting in showings like this. Uh, it could be uh, interesting maybe see what he can do in a role like that for Canada. From Johnny Lower, are you disappointed with the lack of experimentation? Disappointed not to see one of the new midfielders play with Kone. Happy seeing Chouanier, but subs way too late. Yeah, I think it's disappointing to see the lack of experimentation, and it was twofold for me. Either you stick with the 3-5-2 again, like I mentioned, you double down on it, but try some new players. Try a Bombito on the outside of a back three with a you know, Cornelius Miller combo, or try a Defugerol, for example. You called him in, may as well get a look at him, get him a cap. That's only going to help securing him long-term. Try out something different in midfield, which they did, and they did finish the game better with the, the, the experimentations they had in midfield. So it's frustrating not to see the experimentation within the 3-5-2, or if not, like I mentioned, why not go screw it, you're down three goals at half, try a back four with a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-4 box two, you know, a 4 box two or whatever. Just something like that to try something. So yeah, I think the lack of experimentation uh, is frustrating because this is a friendly, this is the chance to do it. Yeah, it's an opponent like Japan, but they're also experimenting. These are the games where, of course, a result is always nice, but you, you, you got to learn something, especially if you're going to lose like this. You, you, the fact that they've come away with it, not learning more about what a Bombito can look like in a back three, more what you know, more of what Cornelius could look like with different partners in the back, more of what a different goalkeeper could look like, what a different formation. Um, I think this was a missed opportunity in that regard, 100%. And Canada, of course, with a couple big games coming up in November, BMO Field to host the Nations League second leg in November. Canada's home leg of the Nations League quarterfinal will be played in Toronto on November 21st. The first leg will be played on either November 16 or 17. Reaching Nations League finals guarantees a spot at the 2024 Copa America, an absolutely critical spot for Canada in preparation for the 2026 World Cup on home soil. And it will likely play the second best group winner out of Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago and Panama. And from Michael Mick underscore Maz, should we be concerned about the Canamente going forward or no? I think from this game, there's not necessarily concern because this was to an extent what we sort of expected, albeit not necessarily a welcome viewing, um, to see that it lived up to the low expectations in a lot of ways. 
so there should be concern if this goes on for a while. I think there should be concern about, you know, not qualifying for the Copa America. Um, because as we saw today, Canada can trip up on their own errors. They don't necessarily have to be played into them. Um, but I don't think it, there's necessarily realm for alarm bells just yet completely. Mm, yes and no. I think, I think again, the alarm bells have already been there. That's what I'd say. I'd say the con- should you be concerned? Yes, but this can't, this game didn't really change some of the questions, I think. Um, I'd say pretty much a lot of what we said after the Nations League final kind of would apply here. So that's probably the big worry that um, there hasn't been that much uh, adjustment. And from Dan Clark, what formation should the Canamati use going forward? The 3-5-2 was exposed badly and showed some major defensive deficiencies. I think a lot of the formation that Biello rolled out today was to get the best out of a consistent position for Alfonso Davies. By having him in that wingback position, you're able to get both sides of him. And I thought at moments they were able to get that. Um, but you're right, it did sort of expose them defensively when they didn't have five at the back. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the formation... I think, again, it's a bit of a boring answer, but I'd say the three. I still think there's a way to make the 3-5-2 work. I'd also think the 4-3-3 is probably also the, the one that would make more sense, but I'd also say the 3-5-2 could work. I think it's more as much what you deploy in it, and especially the way they're playing. They want to be a front foot team that plays in possession, that builds out of the back, that limits their damage on trans- in transition, will then play players within either formation that helps do that. And I think, for example, little things about Boyan struggling with the ball at the feet, that's not going to help you build, build out the back. Vittoria's speed and transition, that's not going to help you limit transitional moments. Did it with someone like, you know, the, the way they were deploying their midfield and the pressure that was um, put. So I'd say it's as much the personnel. If you're going to play a 3-5-2, fine, that's not a bad thing, but then... You might. It's, it's been clear that you maybe have to go a bit more athletic at center back. Maybe it, 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 it means a back three like a Cornelius Bombito and someone else. Even if it's okay, uh, you gotta take some growing pains. Or you go to a four three three and it's a Davies, Cornelius, Miller, Johnston back four, and you get Johnston and, and, and Davies in more natural positions for club. You go for a three man midfielder. You go for for wingers and, and a striker. So I'd say it's, of course, a new formation would help, and I'd love to see what a 4-3-3 could look like, but I think either way, if you're switching the formation or keep it, it's as much about how you're deploying the players because I think it's easy to look at the 3-5-2 like it is the problem, and I think there's certainly highlight parts of the 3-5-2 that would, is why I want to see a 4-3-3, but also I think there's, there are tweaks within 3-5-2 that would need to be explored if they want to keep it. And from the, using Davies anywhere at the back of this team is just an absolute crime. I get the thought, but he's a difference maker in any team, just lost talent. He said that he's wanted to play in a more attacking role. He said that on a podcast a little while ago. But at the same time, he's proven to be one of the best left backs in the world. And when you want to get sort of his familiar position, the best out of him in the national team. The problem is that's not where he's making the biggest difference. Well, to the the point, if he wants to play higher up the field, I think we're just we're not seeing what you need from those the, the, you'd need from him higher up the field. I think it's just again, it's little things like too many touches, um, just the, the the play slowing down through him, and I, that's again sometimes that's Davies is at his best when he can get a lot of touches. But look, it's something like look at Japan the way they were defending. It was almost it was kind of funny at times 
how they would have two or three guys on Davies, leaving someone open in the midfield, daring Davies to be like, play one, two, touch. And then he would take the second. Yeah, Sorry, would roll out to the wing to kind of give the option behind the fullback, and then just Japan was letting them. Yeah, and it was comical because I think it shows because it's like that's a pro- that's been the problem with um, Davies playing in more of a further forward position for Canada. It's just that he hasn't been doing what's needed of him. Uh, I know it. Sometimes you play wing, you want to be like, okay, I'm going to be the guy to take guys on and you know go to the byline, etc. Well, when teams are double or triple teaming you because you're Davies and you're best player, you have to adjust the game. And that's something. And I'll always say, if you're getting double or triple teamed, be an outlet. Make make unselfish runs. Play one two touch. Then teams are gonna have to start to recognize the other threats. And um, it, it feels like Canada has enough dangerous options so that if Davies is getting double or triple teamed, they can they can punish teams for doing so. But that won't happen if Davies is taking those extra touches, slowing play down, allowing Japan to get set defensively as he did a few times. Um, so I'd say that's part of the reason why playing him at fullback could work, just because if he's going to take extra touches, it would just be tactical. Like, no team is ever going to double, triple team someone that high up the field on a press. If they do, they're just leaving all sorts of space in behind, which Canada could exploit with their speed. Uh, so yeah, i say at this point, if he's going to keep... Uh, playing the way he has for Canada, play him at left back, allow him to take those extra touches, maybe put a speedy guy like Miller who can expose some of that space that a team might leave in behind. Uh, but if not, if Davies is going to play higher up the field, it's going to have to be more one-two touch and maybe not the sort of winger play he's used to like he was back in the day at Vancouver. But I think that's been the reality that we've seen over the last year or so. And from CB Keeper Guy, our central defense needs an overhaul. Who is the future? Will they come from MLS, CPL, or abroad? And I think you have to look at both MLS and CPL in particular, because you have a couple center backs that have looked good. Kyle Hebert and Zach McGraw slowed down a little bit in MLS since they were called up previously. But in the CPL, you've got some exciting potential talent. You know, Den Nimick raises uh, the potential. You know, Eric Kobza can play at center back as well. He's done well with Calvary this year. No, with um, that name. The other positive, too, is that... When you look at this crop of under-17 talent, that there are a lot of centre-back prospects coming through as well for the under-17s. And that has to bode well when you're looking at the current player pool, because if even one or two of those guys hit, then you've all of a sudden revitalized that entire position in the player pool. So that would probably be long-term what you look at, and even someone like Luke Defugerol, who is only 18, just turned 18 yesterday, um, he's also a future potential option, right? And he's already getting call-ups. So you're starting to see it kind of turn around. It just depends on how they develop over the next couple of years. 2026 would probably be too early for them, but certainly will be options for 2030 and beyond. And it's interesting with center backs because they do come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to notice. Like Moise and Bombido, this time last year, was finishing up a college that's season. Right. And now all of a sudden you look at the potential and you're like, okay, that's a player there. You look at some of the guys that have come out of nowhere, like Kamal Miller was a super draft pick that was playing fullback for Orlando. You know, even you someone like... Alley, yeah, Alistair Johnson, that's someone similar, super draft pick <clears throat> that was playing at fullback, ended up being so key for the World Cup qualifying run. Um, even guys like Cornelius, it took a lot of grinding... Mm-hmm. So I think it's something, yeah, McNaughton as well. Not someone yeah. who's playing the CPL not long ago. Joel Waterman, of course. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, it's definitely going to come. It's going to take time. So I think it's going to come from the CPL. It's going to come from MLS. It's going to come from college. It's going to come from League One for all we know, just because that's how center backs 
are. And it, I think guys like Nimic will be key, just that you've seen how quickly he's taken to the CPL and hopefully long-term um, he, he, he can make that push. Uh, but yeah, if not, you got guys like Cobbs. Look, Cobbs is another great example within the CPL. This guy was playing U Sports last year, and he's a midfielder, and now he's he's been a, one of the most reliable center backs in the CPL. And you know, Nimic was playing college last year. Now he's one of the most reliable center backs in the CPL. So uh, more examples like that. And from Fabian Stifler, pardon my language, but what the fuck are we doing with these young dual nats? Doesn't seem like there could be a better opportunity to give an 18 year old a look than a four nil game on the road. If the intent was to never play, why bring in? him in at all i would concur i would 100 percent concur because yeah it's something where look you know of course you don't want to play someone just to play someone don't know how he's doing in training etc but at the same time um when your vets are getting worked in a game like this at that point you have nothing to lose at least throw him out there see what he could do it can only help him long term he's not cap tying himself so he has that option Maybe it lights a fire under one of the vets being like, oh, shoot, this 18-year-old kid just came in. Now he's getting a look, and who knows? Maybe he plays well, and things change. So, yeah, I think it is a bit of a uh, one where I've, I'm, I'm baffled not to see at least 5-10 minutes. Like, okay, maybe I'm not saying Defugerol first camp, two training sessions with the senior team, go play half. Okay, maybe if that's too much. But what? there's no, like, 10 minutes? Surely 10 minutes at that point. Uh, especially when you know what you've got with a lot of those guys. So, yeah, it is continue to be puzzling that it's happened again and again and again. Because it's like the same with Coley Osho. It's like there's no harm in throwing him out for those 5-10 minutes. I guess it's different in Coley Osho's case because you had a World Cup coming up and you want to prepare for that. But in this case, it's something where, yeah, you've got Nations League qualifiers coming up. But you're preparing for 26. Like, you're going to be at 26. You have to make decisions that help you win in 2026. And feels like getting someone like a defuser on the field seems like one of those decisions that could potentially help do that so why not go for it and a few questions all sort of of the same nature from johnny lore kamal miller enthusiast and owen w if you had to make a november roster after seeing this performance who would you take out and bring in and from kamal miller enthusiast which players do you think should be dropped for the next camp mine are oso laren and hoylet i'd probably it would be a few i'd have a multi-pronged list i think the first one is yeah just well settle on the formation from biela's perspective i get it if you want to keep it three five two you don't want to experiment although hey i guess bev priestman did recently experiment with formations in a must win two like it qualified it turned out pretty well for her so uh, maybe there is some reason for canada to try a four three three either way settle on a formation within that look at players that can help canada improve in areas that they've been lacking in so again you want to build out the back, put in goalkeepers and center backs that can help you do that. If you want to be a team that plays a high line, put in defenders that can handle the speed and the demands of playing a high line. And overall, I'd say maybe the, the big thing is just reward form a bit more. I think the, the clear thing is that between the likes of Alaren struggling or even a Borean and Victoria, like they've been struggling a bit at the club level. I feel like right, right now at this point, make some jobs less secure. Make is starting roles. Okay, maybe you can still call him a Laren because he's important, but make him have to do 20, 30 minutes off the bench if he continues to struggle for goals with Mallorca. You know, if Ike Ugo is scoring goals, why not call him, right? It's, it's Strikers are finicky like that. You, you, everyone knows that, uh, etc. So I'd say really, to the point, I'll have to see where things are at in a month to say who i drop. But again, it's like, Schwanier has been in great form. Why did it take all the way till October for him to get his first call? 
Ali Ahmed has been in great form. Why wasn't he called? If those guys are in great form, Ike Ubo, if he's scoring goals, call him. And I think that's going to be a big, big thing because I think Kent also just has to get some competition for places going because for whatever reason, it just feels like they've kind of lost that that competition and that spark. And maybe that's some of the reason why they've, they've struggled because complacency feels like it's sat, sat in a little bit. And Canada also finding some information out about their U20 qualifying pathway. Canada's CONCACAF U20 qualifying group was unveiled with Trinidad and Tobago, St. Vincent and Dominica in Group D alongside Canada. Group winner advances to the CONCACAF championship. And generally your thoughts on this. Canada, over the last few years, has seemed to really roll through these tournaments. Yeah, but I think the positive here is that they're going to get games before the tournament, which, okay, it's a direct result of the fact they haven't performed well at these tournaments, but if we're trying to look at this glass half full, they're going to have three matches to prepare for the actual tournament itself, which means guys get their tactical sinks all queued up and everything just kind of comes together in those games. Then when the actual proper competition comes, hopefully those kinks are worked out. So that's a really big positive, I think. Or I guess a silver lining in the fact that they weren't good enough to be one of those best-placed teams to automatically qualify, so they have to go through the qualifying path. This will at least help them ensure that they can get some proper match practice in time for the big games against whether it's the Mexico, the U.S. Um, clearly, the Dominican Republic are going to be a bit of a force. Um, teams like that, it, it could end up coming in really handy, which is good. And getting into the CPL playoffs briefly, Pacific down York United 1-0 on Wednesday at Starlight Stadium. A thrilling match, that one. Chances both sides. Uh, and, of course, it was Adonijah Reed in the final moments winning it for Pacific. Only for Paris G to score a 92nd-minute bicycle kick. That was a hair offside. But you never know in the CPL. Like, you know, yeah. some games, that's onside. That's it, yep. <laughs> So it would have been iconic uh, if that one had gone in and York had managed to advance... Uh, after the fact, but HFX against Pacific in the quarterfinal this Saturday. Pacific with the long journey all the way across the country, one of the longest journeys in world football. Um, your thoughts on that first playing game as well as the quarterfinal coming up? Deserve winners, Pacific. I mean, they did, in terms of the quality of the chances, outdo York. I don't think we're surprised by that. We expected them to pretty much control and dominate the game, and they did. Obviously, that Late moment from Paris G, maybe put hearts in mouths for a moment, but uh, eventually they did get the job done. Now I think the buck may stop here because that cross-country trip on short rest with that quick of a turnaround, that could haunt them. But at the same time, you know, getting a, a massive win like that could turn around their confidence. I did say in the last episode that Pacific could be that team that, despite being inconsistent yet again this season, they have the ability to just turn it on for a couple of games and then maybe they make a run. But I still think Halifax will be favored. They're really good at home. Uh, defensively, they're very staunch back there. So I'd expect Halifax to win, especially given the travel factor. But Pacific are just so unpredictable that, that really you, you can't be 100% certain. Yeah, it's, been, it's interesting because it felt like York, funnily enough, like, York got the better of them for a good chunk of the game, especially in the first half. York, the first half, yes. York was kind of yeah. all over. And, I mean, Pacific kind of reminded York of their danger. They had that um, Toma Mergigir goal that was ruled out, and they were looking good on set pieces, Pacific were. But in open play, York was getting the better of them. Um, but I think it was interesting because Pacific this year, they've been continued to be very good defensively by the underlying numbers, despite maybe the goals against and whatnot. And I think they showed it with their performance for the most part in this game. 
Um, and it was just a matter of, okay, can they score in those key moments? And it's funny. I mean, James Merriman must, it must be a nightmare as a coach because for whatever reason, he whoever he starts just struggles. Like Eamon Salouf, who'd been so good all year, he was struggling to get in the game. They sub him out. It's two subs that link up for the winner, Kakuta Made and Adaija Reed. And it's not, it's not the first time this year that Pacific have had joy from their subs. So Merriman was... Must think, like, is it something where you start a guy and after 10 minutes you sub in a new front line just to pretend like they're subs or something like that? But no, either either way, I think this uh, it should be a good matchup. I think Halifax should be favored just because of that travel. I think it's important to note it shows why that advantage of finishing third is huge because Pacific in a 70, less than 72 hours had to change four time zones and take over like a six or seven hour flight knowing those... The journey, knowing the journey from Victoria to Halifax, there's probably a connection or two in there Easily. as well. Like that's a nightmare to deal with. If there's a team that can deal with it, Pacific's one of them because they have the depth and they're going to be able to rotate their squad a fair amount. So I think that'll give them an advantage. Um, but Halifax this is a great opportunity for them, and especially at home where they've been so good. So I think it'll be a good game. I think Pacific's going to give a heck of a fight. I think they showed in this York game that they're almost better suited for these playoff games where all the pressures on them and they just have to go out because in the regular season it just felt like the, the early start caught up to them maybe they thought they were going to cruise through the league and James Merriman's mentioned that for whatever reason this his team's always better with their backs against the wall um, so I think it'll be a very good game and I'm fascinated to see who ends up coming out because it's going to be a, f- a fun run in from the rest of the way with uh, especially with Forge and Cavalry getting set to face off this oh. weekend for that, that first spot in the final and the hosting privileges. And that's all we've got for episode 143 of the Northern Football Podcast. Some CPL chat to end it off. But Canada losing 4-1 to Japan in what was mostly a dismal effort in the lone international friendly this international window. We'll be back next time for episode 144 of NFP. He's been Peter Galindo. He's been Alex Gongirizic. And I've been Ben Steiner. Thanks so much for tuning in.